Hey folks, and welcome to episode 189 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the passages for the second Sunday in the Advent season. If you'd like to download the lectionary that Peter and Alistair are using for these discussions, you can find a link down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this conversation over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm joined remotely by Alistair Roberts, at least for a few minutes. Alistair is hurrying off to one of his other podcasts. I don't know how many hundreds of podcasts Alistair is a host of, but uh, he's hurrying off to do an interview with Tim Keller in a few minutes, so he may have to bow out before we're done. Uh, but for the time being, we have Alistair on the line, and this week we're discussing the readings for the second Sunday of Advent, and in 2018, that's December 9th. Uh, the readings for this coming Sunday are Malachi 3, the first seven verses, uh, Philippians 1, verses 2 through 11, and then Luke 3, verses 1 through 14, with a uh, suggested or optional reading that continues on to verse 20 in Luke 3. Uh, and as uh, as you mentioned, Alistair, at the beginning, the, the uh, most logical progression seems to be to move from the Malachi passage to Luke to Philippians. Uh, Malachi and Luke are clearly linked. Uh, Malachi 3 is one of the passages in Malachi that uses the, uh, the title of the book. Malachi is not, as one pastor quipped, the only Italian author of a, of a prophetic book. He's not Malachi. Uh, Malachi is a noun that means messenger or angel, and it means my messenger. The, the E at the end is a first-person possessive uh, pronoun. So the, the title means my messenger, and in Malachi 3, we have a reference to the messenger or the angel that the Lord is going to send. It picks up on Exodus themes. Uh, the Lord sent his angel, his messenger, to lead Israel out of Egypt. Here, the messenger is coming in order to prepare the way for the Lord's own coming, and specifically, uh, the angel is coming or the messenger is coming in order to prepare the temple for the Lord's coming. Uh, he's going to make his way into the temple. He's going to purify it. Uh, he's going to purify the Levites and uh, smelt them like gold and silver. He's going to wash them up, uh, as it were, with soap. And uh, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord's return into his house. This is the passage that Mark quotes in part at the beginning of his gospel although the uh, Gospel of Mark begins by claiming this is a, pr a prophecy of Isaiah, uh, Mark actually conflates two passages. He uh, conflates Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, with Malachi 3, the messenger who's sent before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, and uh, begins his Gospel with that. And this uh, messenger is obviously the, the forerunner of the Lord, the one who prepares the Lord's coming. I think it's significant that he prepares the Lord's coming into his temple. So you already have, when we think about Malachi 3 as an Advent prophecy, we already have in view Jesus' action in the temple. That's, John is not just preparing his way for the Lord's coming to Israel, though that's true. He's specifically preparing the way for the Lord's coming into his house to purify and to cleanse his house. You mentioned the allusion back to um, 
the story of the Exodus. In Exodus 23, verse 20, we read, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So those themes are playing in the background. But there's also, a, to some degree, a question over the relationship between the messenger that is preparing the way and then the messenger of the covenant that's immediately mentioned afterwards. And we see this, I think, within the message that John the Baptist brings in um, places like Mark, which you mentioned. This, These two figures, the figure of the great prophet that precedes the messenger of the covenant, and then the messenger of the covenant himself, who in some senses could be described as the archetypal prophet. And that's something that Meredith Klein has discussed very helpfully, I think, within his Images of the Spirit, that the messenger of the covenant, the angel of the Lord, is the archetypal prophet. And that's associated with Christ. And then before that is sent the archetypal or the prophet Elijah um, or John the Baptist, who prepares the way for this one who's coming. Right. The Elijah passage comes in the following chapter of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5. Verse five. Uh, Behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So uh, yeah, if you distinguish those two those two uh, persons, those two uh, characters, then you have John the Baptist and the, the angel of the Lord or the, the Lord himself coming into, coming into his temple. Uh, we noticed last time, in uh, last week in uh, our discussion of the Jeremiah passage, Jeremiah 33, you have this combination of a, the Jeremiah 33 promises the restoration of the Davidic house of the Davidic monarchy and also promises the restoration of the Levites and the fact that the, the Lord's promise that the Levites are going to be uh, restored to their work as the, uh, as the you know, liturgical leaders of Israel. That, that fits together, in, as, uh, as I, we pointed out last week, that uh, David is the one who organizes the Levites for the ministry in the temple. And we have the same focus here on the Levites. The Lord is going to come to his house and he's going to purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver. So uh, again, the, we have the same kind of liturgical emphasis. The Lord is coming to make worshipers. The Father seeks worshipers, as Jesus says in John's Gospel. And we have that implied already here in the, uh, in the prophecy of Malachi. Do you see any significance in the order of the, um, the forms of judgment in verse 5? I was pondering this and... I was wondering whether it followed to some extent orders of the um, commandments, but I wasn't entirely sure if there was anything there or not. The, so the, the uh, movement from refiner's fire to soap. For instance, perjurers would be perjurers taking the name of the Lord of God in vain, um, exploiting, associating with failure to keep the Sabbath, um, and widows and fatherless associated with um, um, honor father and mother. Yeah, so you're looking, you're looking into verse 5 uh, particularly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, hadn't, uh, I hadn't considered that. I think the, I mean, you have uh, passages like this in elsewhere, sometimes in the New Testament, where you have a list of the commandments that don't seem to follow exactly the sequence of the ten words, but they're clearly drawn from the ten words. Jesus does that on occasion. Paul does that. And you have a similar kind of thing here. Uh, Jim Jordan has pointed out the connection that you find in much of the post-exilic literature of which Malachi is a part. Malachi is prophesying after the return from exile, apparently in some period after the, the uh, prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah. 
in those prophecies, uh, Zechariah uh, does this in, I think, Zechariah 2. You have this link between uh, false swearing and theft. And uh, Jim has suggested that there's a part of the part of the logic of that is the lineup of the first five and the second five commandments. Uh, they're, they run parallel to each other, those two halves of the Ten Commandments. And when you do that, then this, the third commandment about bearing uh, the Lord's name lightly, which would include false, include false oaths, lines up with theft, the eighth commandment. So you have uh, you have a uh, that 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 link, those who swear falsely or those who blaspheme, linked up with those who steal. And you seem to have something similar here: those those who swear falsely, and those who oppress the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan, might be a, a linking up with the eighth commandment form of theft. But it it wouldn't be so much a sequence through the commandments as drawing out the parallels between those two, uh, those two uh, parts of the Decalogue. And I, I think that part of the point, part of Jim's point is that you have these two commandments that are focused on in the post-exilic period because you're in a new phase of history when the, the great evil is no longer uh, worshiping false gods or high places where they worship God with images. Now that Israel scattered out among the nations in the exile and after the exile, their new great struggle is over bearing the name of God and whether they're going to witness faithfully. And then that would line up with all kinds of other triads where you have a movement from movement in the early chapters of Genesis from sanctuary sins to land sins to sins out in the world. And Malachi uh, and the other post-exilic literature would perhaps line up with that. Possibly that. The text also seems to be exploring very much this two-sided aspect character to the day of the lord the day day of the lord is god's presence coming near which will be a glorious thing but it's also something that brings um terrible judgment Mm. judgment that is very searching and this idea of the purifying fire that at once destroys the dross but also is that which brings forth gold and silver Mm. in its refined form and that particular theme here comes to um, particular pronounced expression, I think, within this exploration of the notion of the day of the Lord. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a, a section. I think it's in I think it's in City of God where Augustine talks about the the fire of the Lord's judgment that destroys, but at the same time it purifies the righteous, and he compares it to uh, the um, destructive yet purifying effect of fire on precious metals. Paul, Paul used that kind of image in uh, 1 Corinthians. The, the Lord stokes up a fire, and those things that are uh, not suitable building materials for the church are consumed. But those things that are suitable, gold, silver, remain, and they're actually purified and glorified by the Lord's judgment. We're going to see that same kind of double doubleness to the day of the Lord when we get to uh, next week's Old Testament reading with uh, Zephaniah, where the day of the Lord is a huge theme early in the book. But the, the book ends with this uh, uh, wonderful vision of the Lord delighting over Israel as a bridegroom over his bride. We can uh, move on to, to Luke 3, where we have uh, Luke's account of John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, and uh, uh, links up with the, the coming of the messenger that uh, prepares the way for the Lord. Uh, Luke, characteristically uh, working in a kind of an imperial context, Luke is the uh, Luke is the gospel that corresponds to the exilic and post-exilic era of Israel's history and characteristically begins the chapter with a reference to Tiberius Caesar, 
Pontius Pilate, Herod, Herod is a tetrarch, and Philip is a tetrarch, and uh, Lysanias. So he gives us gives us a picture of uh, imperial governance in Judea, uh, as well as uh, the high priesthood of uh, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, who were ruling over Israel at the time. So that combination of um, imperial and Israelites setting, uh, dating things, or marking John's ministry by this double reference to Israel and the nations. And John's ministry is described in terms of Isaiah's prophecy, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Uh, like Malachi, that's a prophecy about uh, preparation for the Lord's coming. It's about the return from exile in Isaiah. But the return from exile is not just the return of the Israelites from exile, but it's the return of the Lord from his presence with the exiles uh, in, in exile. A couple things that stand out to me in this in John's prophecy here. One is the the stress he places on the coming wrath. Uh, this is the first time we hear part of, part of the preaching of the kingdom. We've we've heard announcements, birth announcements for Jesus for John and Jesus in the early chapters. Uh, we've had uh, the story of Jesus in the temple, but now we have the public ministry of John beginning, and from the very beginning, uh, there's a threat of destruction and doom over Israel. The, the wrath to come is the, is, is the message that John's bringing. Just as with Jesus, the message is the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent. The Lord is coming, and that means, as you said, Alistair, as means judgment for those who oppose him. It also means, uh, it's, uh, means deliverance and purifying for those who uh, cling to him. The, the other thing that is interesting to me is the, the use of the axe image, because I think that helps us to get a specific sense of what John is warning about. He's warning about the wrath to come, but when he re refers to an axe that's already laid at the root of the trees, that, that means that gives it a, the wrath is going to take a particular form. What I have in mind is the prophecy of Isaiah, uh, who describes Assyria as the Lord's axe. Who's, uh, the Lord is swinging his axe against, first of all, the northern kingdom, and the Lord is going to swing the axe of Assyria against the southern kingdom uh, in the siege of Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah. So the image of the axe is the Lord's instrument, the Lord's, uh, or the Lord's weapon almost, for uh, judging his people, and it, it refers to an, an empire. The other, the other connection is uh, Psalm 79, which talks about the enemies of God taking up axes in the temple, and they chop up the temple. The temple is lined with cedar paneling, uh, and the, the uh, uh, Psalm 79 describes this attack on the temple as if it were a devastation of a forest. The temple, the interior of a temple is like uh, like a grove, a forest, uh, and um, the, the enemies of God are taking up their axes against the Lord's forest. And John, alluding to that passage, again, gives a spe specific focus to the judgment that's coming. It's about the Lord's axe, another imperial power, and it's a threat to the temple, which is the Lord's uh, grove. And that connection with the temple is also, um, it draws our minds back to Malachi 3. But in verse 17, we have a similar image that is a temple image, which is of the threshing floor. Um, the temple was built on the threshing floor and the image of the priests treading out the, um, the grain on that floor is it's an image that we see surfacing at certain points in scripture. And that, it seems to me, is significant. One of the things that I find um, maybe worth attention is the fact that Jesus in the um, Sermon on the Plain and also the Sermon on the Mount in, Math in Matthew 
um, speaks very much to people who are mistreated, who um, have their coat taken from them or they're struck on the cheek. Whereas John in his preaching seems to be teaching very much to people who would be in the position to do that oppressing. Mm. The person who has wealth, two coats, the person who's the tax collector, who um, might collect more than he has prescribed to him, and the soldier who could extort money or get them to walk the walk a mile with them to carry their load. And this also occurs as a significant spot. It's on the it's in the region around the Jordan, which is that realm before you enter into the promised land, um, or it's associated with that that crossing into the land, um, which in part, as people like N.T. Wright and others have highlighted, it's situating Israel in this position of needing this new exodus, this new um, entrance into the land from a wilderness condition, which is associated with the leprosy of sin, with um, their failure to enter into the fullness of God's presence, these sorts of things. And then the other detail that I find interesting is the connection of John the Baptist with Elijah is drawn at other points within Luke's gospel, particularly as we get to the period um, after his death and um, immediately surrounding his death. But here we see the connection between Herod and Herodias and John at the end of this passage, which would draw our mind back to Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, the the uh, uh, when you br- as you bring that out, the the uh, just the fact that he's addressing tax collectors. We know there are Jewish tax collectors that the Romans used locals and incorporated them into the into their tax system and. We know the tax collectors were despised. Interesting that there are soldiers here, uh, as you said. This, this is the this is the obverse of Jesus' instruction, which is about the person who is abused by a Roman soldier. Uh, but here it seems like you've got these are people that uh, claim Abraham as their father. Apparently, verse eight says, uh, but there are soldiers among them. So they're uh, maybe they're maybe they're part of the temple temple guard. Um, Maybe they're Jews who are also like the tax collectors who are um, are uh, allied with the Romans and therefore are seen as uh, traitors to the Jewish cause. Uh, they're the ones who are coming out and are listening to John the Baptist. So that collection of characters is an interesting one. One final note before I have to go. The statement in verse 18 with many other exhortations he proclaimed the good news to the people this isn't usually what we think of as gospel Um, this proclamation of God's coming in judgment and the need to be prepared for that um, very often we have a very different notion of what gospel um, includes yeah it sounds like John the Baptist needs a lesson on grace to me (laughs) So Alistair left uh, and left me to discuss the last passage uh, that's uh, signed for the second Sunday of Advent. That's Philippians 1, verses 2 through 11. Uh, Alistair has more important people to talk to in the next couple of hours, and uh, he left uh, our little podcast and uh, our little host to fend for himself. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, I refer you back to last week's discussion of the epistle reading of 1 Thessalonians 3, because I think that the the logic of Philippians 2 is very similar 
Uh, the reason why it's an Advent passage, I think, has to do with a reference to uh, the coming of the Lord, which uh, the day of the day of Christ, which is uh, Paul refers to in verse ten. So there's a there's a there's an Advent theme to it that uh, um, that uh, links up with the the Old Testament and the and the Gospel passage. Uh, but uh, in Philippians one, as in First Thessalonians three, Paul is writing a heartfelt letter of greeting and love and gratitude uh, to a church that he longs to be with. Uh, he expresses again his desire to see them and to be to be present with them. I have you in my heart, he says in verse 7, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, which I take to mean he longs not only for their good, but he longs to be with them, to see them face to face. And as we discussed last week, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, this is kind of, a, kind of an echo of Advent. The Lord comes to us and shows his face to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul wants to be face to face with the uh, members of the Philippian church. And uh, that's, a, uh, that's an echo of the Lord's coming and his Advent. Uh, and then you can extend that and say that the face to face, the face to face encounter that we have with one another in the church is also an echo of Advent. It's because of the Spirit's work in us that we can be face-to-face and be united together. Uh, it's the Spirit who, uh, who uh, uh, stirs up these longings to be with one another and to know one another. And it's the Spirit who places us each in one another's heart, as Paul describes it in verse 7. Uh, so all of those are rooted in the reality of the Lord's coming uh, that uh, is uh, extended by the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost those are all uh, not only rooted in that, but they're uh, small-scale expressions of the same reality uh, that we have in the in the coming of the Lord at, at uh, Christmas and in His incarnation. The main thrust of this passage and the main thrust of the opening chapter is uh, stated in verse three: "I thank my God in all my remembrance of you." Paul is giving, uh, showing his gratitude to the Philippians because of their support for him. Uh, he calls them partners in the gospel. They uh, share in the gospel. They have a uh, they have a common participation in the gospel, and the the participation is is not uh, the, the the way they contribute to the gospel is not identical. Paul is on the front lines. Paul is preaching the gospel in contested circumstances. He's writing from prison, uh, as he says. But um, that's not the Philippian situation. The Philippian church is back in Philippi. Uh, they're not in. Um, they're not. Uh, under threat, at least they aren't uh, at the time that Paul's writing to them. You look, go back to ask Acts, and you see that there's a there's a, a riot stirred up by Paul's first appearance in Philippi. But he's not writing to a church that's under under immediate threat. Uh, the way they're particip- participating in the gospel is by supporting Paul in his ministry, uh, as he says here at the beginning and also at the end of the letter. Uh, they provided for him. They've sent encouragement to him. They've provided assistance in various ways. And those more distant ways of particip- of, of uh, supporting Paul's ministry, he sees as part of the gospel work. And that's not just a matter of financial support or personal support and encouragement for Paul, uh, but that's actually part of the preaching of the gospel. The uh, spreading of the good news does not just involve Paul as the apostle, teaching and preaching and proclaiming Jesus, but it involves all the other supporting elements, uh, 
the uh, uh, that uh, the, the Philippians are providing. He sees that all as a as a koinonia in the gospel. The other accent, the first accent is gratitude in verse three. The other accent, of course, is is joy, uh, offering prayer with joy in uh, in my every prayer for you all, and that um, that uh, we'll see next uh, next week that that becomes a a dominant theme at the end of the letter. It's often pointed out how striking it is that Paul writes one of his most exuberant letters of of joy while he's in prison, and is not only speaking of his own joy in the Philippians and his own joy in the gospel, but he's also speaking about, he's exhorting the Philippians to rejoice as well. You can imagine that back in Philippi, they may not be under threat, but the apostle who preached Christ to them originally is now in prison, and uh, that that looks like a, a blow to the blow to the church. It looks like a blow to the advance of the gospel, uh, and you can imagine that that would raise all kinds of questions in their minds about about Paul, perhaps about Jesus, about uh, the gospel itself, and certainly might it certainly puts a kind of a cloud puts them in a shadow. Uh, but Paul sees this as a reason for rejoicing instead of re- being a reason for gloom. It's not a defeat for Paul to be in prison. Uh, it's another venue for him to uh, share the gospel. He's able to uh, uh, he's able to uh, uh, preach the gospel because of his in a new venue because of his imprisonment because he's appeared before these governors. I, I need to correct something I said earlier when I was talking about the original Paul's original time in Philippi. I had in mind Acts nineteen, which is actually about Paul's visit to Ephesus. So then uh, Acts eighteen uh, that's about Paul's visit to Ephesus. Need to correct that. It's a, what, what Paul does have opposition when he goes to Philippi, but it's the opposition that leads him to be arrested and put in jail, uh, and that's uh, it really illustrates the point I was making uh, at the end uh, at the end of my comments that um, the the prison is not a place of it's not it's not an interruption of Paul's ministry. Paul gets arrested and he goes to jail, and the Lord breaks open his chains and breaks open the jail, and that becomes an opportunity for ministering the gospel to the jailer. Uh, as we know, the Philippian jailer is converted. Uh, he and his household are baptized. All the little kids, at the, uh, they're, right, they're, they're awakened at night. Yes, they're brought into the jail and they're all baptized. It's the infant baptism proof text in the New Testament. That's for all those Baptist listeners. But the Philippian jailer is con- converted, his household converted, and that's a sign that the 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 prison is not a uh, it's not a a dead end for the gospel, but it, that's just a new place where the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Uh, the good news of Jesus and life in the incarnate Son is proclaimed on the cross. It's proclaimed in the grave. It's proclaimed in prisons. It's proclaimed in torture. It's proclaimed when people are being tried before governors and kings. Wherever Christians go. Uh, they have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And so that's part of Paul's reason for rejoicing, that he, uh, though in prison, uh, he can still see uh, this, this as, a, as the Lord's gift of an opportunity for witness. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.